In episode three, Gillian reveals some of the on-set secrets of Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange and explains her working relationship with producer Peter Vitesse. Gillian also tells of her memories with François Hardy, Donovan, and her part in the movie Inadmissible Evidence. Gillian looked back on her time as an illustrator in New York and played tracks from her album Lily. Gillian, welcome back to our final episode. Thank you. It's lovely to have you with me. Um, we've covered so much interesting territory already. And I'm keen to get stuck into some more great stories from you. So I want to start by asking about the song Zubi Zoo. Well, Zubi Zoo was a, a song I discovered when I went to the studio. I didn't know what I was going to be doing. And uh, they played it to me and it seemed very simple. I liked the song. Uh, it was a sweet song. And... Um, I was still very unused to the studio, full stop. I mean, I, I'd been with Henri Salvador and Eddie Constantine, and that was that. I had very little experience. But I loved the song because of its simplicity and also because it was full of love. And I needed love. And it was perfect for me. It was as as if I was Cinderella and the glass slipper fit. So I did it in one go. Of course, I had to listen to the music. As I said, I liked the music. And the lyrics were very simple. But there was a message also. And the message was that of love. And I was very sensitive to that because I felt that in my life, um, the normal family life was non-existent. It never had existed. It had existed maybe for a period at my grandma, but still there was a, a cut between my cousins and myself because I had arrived from Switzerland, from where I had... Uh, well, I'd arrived safe. That means safe for them, I didn't have tuberculosis anymore because I'd caught it from my mother. And I was safe. But for them, nothing was safe. So I knew there was a boy. And he was a hidden boy. And so I was slightly apart. And Zubi Zoo, for me, meant togetherness. It meant grandma, grandpa, parents. Maybe, if lucky... Uh, a brother or a sister. All of these things that I wanted in life. And I was very happy singing this song. Of course, it meant love and boyfriend, maybe a boyfriend or two. But I was a one, I was really a girl who would have fallen in love with one boy. So Zubizu was a perfect beginning for me. It's as if Eddie Barclay had seen through me. Amazing. So let's have a listen to Zooby Zoo. Zooby Zooby Zoo. Zooby Zooby Zoo. Zooby Zooby Zoo. Zooby Zoo. Zooby Zoo. Mon Dieu qu'il sont doux. Zooby Zooby Zoo. 
Jillian, of course, that was featured in the TV series Mad Men. Let's talk a bit about that. I had been watching Mad Men. I loved the program. I loved the fact that it showed New York. Um, I recognized New York because I had lived there and I was still living there. Uh, and it's a fantastic city. As a child, as a ch- I didn't think of myself as a child, of course not. But let's say when I was about 13, 12, 11, I fantasized about Madison Avenue. I just thought it was the center of the world. And I wanted to be there one day. But of course, I never thought I would ever step on its streets, on its pavement. And here, here, there was a song. And it was a part of a fantastic uh, TV series, Mad Men. And I was glued to that series. I loved it. And Jessica Perret, the charming, beautiful Jessica Perret, was singing it. I was, I was, I have to say, I giggle about it now. But it was just so surreal for me. It was like a Christmas gift. Brilliant. And now let's talk about another great song of yours, Tut Tut. Tut Tut was a pleasure. I loved being able to make fun and to change my voice. And there were very few French artists who had a particular rhythm, really on the dot. There was Petula Clark, she was English, and me, I was English. There is a completely different rhythm with French singers. I don't know what it is. They're just born differently. Uh, Maybe it's got to do with the language or something. But I was always hitting it on the mark. And I had fun. I think it's a great thing to have fun when you're working. I didn't know then it was my goodbye at all. It's just, you know, there are songs that you sing and you want to sing them seriously. And there are other songs that you, you, you do your best, you know. But this one was a pleasure. Because I could change, I could change the the voice, um, and that was my my secret, the secret in my pocket that nobody knew anything about. I could be somebody else, and I loved that. Well, then let's listen to Tut Tut. So that was Tut Tut. And of course, many people will know this song from the TV series, The Queen's Gambit. Talk to me more about that, Gillian. I was very taken by Queen's Gambit. I felt that there was a correlation between the girl and me. She was in a boarding school. 
She didn't particularly like it. Uh, it was not the nicest place to be in. What she was doing, she was, well, she was pinching pills. I wasn't. I was very, very young. I began very young. But the convents I went to were horrible. Uh, and I felt very lonely. Um, I think she does too. She feels isolated. Mother sees me as her hope. And in Queen's Gambit, her mother sees her as her hope. Where is the father? Doesn't seem to exist. My father doesn't seem to exist either. We are two girls swimming with mothers who need help. And the grown-up between the two is the daughter. The daughter has to find the way around. She needs courage. I needed the courage. So she is determined. I have to be determined too. The difference was that I was terribly shy. I felt plain. I felt ugly. I wondered what I was doing there in Paris. But the film director, Vadim, was very intelligent. And so was the writer, Roger Vaillant. They saw something in me... I did not see. I saw myself in a funny mirror. I saw myself distorted. They didn't. So I listened to them. And this built up courage in me. My shyness stemmed from years of convent boarding schools that put me down. And I was always moving around. It was destabilizing. It's when I met Daniel Philippe Aki that I brightened up. I loved music. Salut le copain was my holiday. It was a music program that kids, all the kids in France, uh, listened to. And he changed society. He gave them something that belonged to them. And Daniel, when he met me, he gave me a gift. He said to me, do you want to do something on the program? I will offer you. Every Friday, you can come in, you can choose whatever songs you want. And instead of saying, being shy and saying no, I suddenly perked up and I said, yes, I will do it. And he gave me the courage that I... I didn't know I had, and he didn't know me. I was too shy to tell him who I was, but he saved me, and slowly, slowly, I grew up, and he was very funny. He had this look on his face. It was in his eyes. They were teasing eyes, and I began to feel that I was getting... The girl I had lost back. Philippe Aki was a funny, young person, very encouraging, although he was not aware of how much he helped me. Fascinating stuff as always. Thank you, Gillian. Now, tell me more about Call My Agent, because you're a fan of that, with a link to it as well, aren't you? Yeah, I thought that was brilliant. 
And um, we had somebody who was producing it. I knew um, it was in Paris and I was asked to make a program. Uh, actually, he had found me and somebody called me and said, do I still sing? And I said, of course I sing. Uh, I sing in the kitchen. <laughs> so then I realized I got myself into a hole. I ended up in Paris singing a duet with a charming, absolutely charming Dominique Besnéard. And uh, the show also had Jane Birkins. I felt at home. And that was a great help because we worked together in, in Blow Up. And uh, she always took her, a copybook out and she'd begin scribbling. And at the back of my mind, I said to myself, she's going to be a writer, that one. Because writers do that. You know, she's had her usual um, bag, which was nobody, nobody carried a bag like hers because it was not considered done. You know, they wanted leather and things like that. But she was very, very uh, different. And um, she did what she wanted to do. So this show, does it have a connection with Call My Agent? Is it the same producer, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the same producer. Of course, he deals with subjects that he knows. But uh, I really respect Dominique Besnéard. And I thought that he was lovely to work with. He had never sung before. He was singing a song with me uh, for a friend of his who was also on the programme. And um, I just thought that he was a little bit too high. And Stuart was there, my husband. And he was in the, the booth with the, uh, the guy who was doing the sound, recording us. And um, I said to Stuart, I think I'd like to lower Dominique. He said, oh, I'm fine. I said, no, 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 just wait and see. And so he was lowered and he felt a lot better. And actually, he was very good. And the thing about this, this program, because I was so scared, and I hadn't done TV for a hell of a long time, um, I decided to have something to drink. Now, I don't drink at all. I so remember I you saying remember. this. Occasionally, you yeah. had the old tipple just to, for yeah. Dutch courage, as we call so it. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to, I don't know what it was, but I had a little something. And the thing is, I don't drive. And they had a car there. And uh, I could never open the car door. And I started giggling because I thought it was hilarious. And then somebody came. And they open the door for me. The door is left open. And then when I'm supposed to get out, I nearly fall out. And that makes peals of laughter on my side. So I just think that it was not really what they expected of me. I ended up rather like Lucille Ball. But I think it was okay. I don't think that one should be always straight-laced and perfect and charming. You know, I think a bit of fun is nice on you know. I agree. And people relate to that and they enjoy it, don't they? Yeah. Thank you for yeah. that story. So as you say, of course, you are still singing. Um, now, there's a song from your new album that we must talk about. Um, let me try and get the pronunciation right. Infinitissimalement. Oh, yes. Infinitissimalement. Yes. Well, it's a word that does not exist in French, actually. Uh, it means regret and a very long regret in life, a sadness. You know, you can have a sadness that weaves itself inside you. It lasts. And whatever one tries to do, you can't ignore it. You can't repair it. You made a mistake. And the damage when you fall in love and you can't show it. 
Yeah, so that is about that. And um, I have mistakes myself. I made a mistake. Um, so if you fall in love, don't be frightened of family or friends who bear down on you and scare the life out of you. What you have to do is be you, because specifically when you were very young, you might make a mistake, but it's your mistake, and that's fine. But if you pass on a person you truly admire, truly like, truly love, and the person makes you laugh, makes you happy, the person loves you, it's best to go for the flow. And so you have to have the courage to turn your back on all the screeching, all fear of repercussions, because it's your life. And remember, because later... You'll be sorry that it passed. And I think the girls nowadays, they do sort of, uh, you know, like, the, like your mothers used to do, say, oh, no, 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 whatever. No, just go with the flow. Thank you for that story, Gillian. It's beautiful advice and a beautiful song. Let's have a listen. done some fantastic TV work too. I've just been watching um, some highlights and I'd like to ask you for your highlights about two specific shows. The first one yeah. is Les Globetrotter in 1966. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, that was so lovely. Um, first of all, I had to get a student's visa because, you know, I had to have student on my passport because it was not considered right for uh, an actress to go and and in these countries, it was very closed. So, what countries were they that you were filming? Well, one was Iran, mm-hmm. and the other one was Turkey. Right, and I yeah. did not know that Dennis was actually living in Turkey. He had married again, but he was in Ankara, and I was in Istanbul. And Istanbul was a wonderful place. Um, the series was directed by Claude Lelouch, and it was a huge success. I was in the first two early episodes and then one more after Christmas. Um, the series was the most fun I ever had. The crew was brilliant, totally professional. I made friends with the script girl, Francoise, who was very tall. All seemed to slide on wheels. Um, Istanbul was the first episode. And for breakfast, oh my God, I had honey with fresh strawberries for breakfast. I was, that's the first time it ever happened to me. And on the second day, something odd happened. Something peculiar, because when the lift stopped at my floor, I got out. And the guy manning the lift runs, well, he gets out too. I walk briskly. He walks fast. Then I decide to run. He runs. I lock my door. I slam the door shut. I lock myself in. The guy starts banging loudly on the door. I call the reception for help. 
Well, uh, she wasn't there the next day, but the rest of our stay was really a delight. The food, I have to say, the food in Istanbul was a revelation. I found at the souk a beautiful tray made with iridescent dark blue butterflies and it, they were captured under glass so they kept all their sheen and I gave it to a person I was sharing once a week a program that was very very popular with the French kids and it was called Salut les Copains and his name was Daniel and uh, when he'd got it he didn't know what it was because it's wrapped in paper and then he said to me when he saw it that he loved it I didn't know that actually he'd had a, a past as a child in Turkey. Right. And I did not know, as I said, that my father was teaching in Ankara. In Ankara. This is a country that Dennis loved. And he, he was very much like this. He had a beaten up Volkswagen. He went on the road to discovery. Well, he wrote a book called My Travels on Turkey, and it became a classic. And the next stop was Tehran. Um, I had a special document, as I said, as a student. Mm-hmm. Actresses are not allowed. In Tehran, I looked a lot more modern. There were new buildings. Our hotel had a swimming pool. And I made a friend with the script girl called Françoise, who was towering over me. And I decided to visit the jewelry shop opposite the hotel. And they had a glass case that stood in the middle. And we examined its contents. And my friend... She realized the Chopin owner uh, was not only following us, but seemed to have more than a normal interest in us. And Francoise, with her long legs, hurried around the table. Then we were both running around to avoid him. And Francoise shot out of the shop and me somewhat trailing behind. And we rushed back to the hotel, safe and sound. Because you see, I had fair hair, she had dark hair, but it would definitely not of the country. Not local, yeah. And um, later on, we filmed in the desert. And I think it was the most beautiful memory I have. It was so calm and the sand was soft pink. And suddenly a turbaned man appears from nowhere, making a sign, would we like some tea? We did, thank you. We sat in a circle, all of us, because we were all together, the film director, everybody. He was beautiful. He had uh, blue eyes. He was quite ancient. And he had the manners of a king. And there was peace everywhere. The whole desert was now ours. And I think this was the most extraordinary moment I had ever experienced. You know, the desert, so calm. A man who comes as if from another planet. And his home was in a rock. But for us, he was an apparition, a memory forever. I feel like you've just taken us right there as well. Thank you, Gillian. That was so evocative. Ah, How beautiful, the memory. Well, I loved it. We all loved it there. The second TV series I wanted to ask you briefly about is The Owl Service. Can you tell me more about that? Well, The Owl Service was a turning point in my my life. I mean, I say my career, but actually in my life. Mm-hmm. Two months of absolute bliss. I was back in my teens. Alison was somewhat like me, existing, but not really living. She had a the mother you never see her. When I went back to London, it gave me the courage to find a place of my own. 
And very soon I was looking different. I was looking much better because mother was not there and I was relaxed. I don't know if she was aware that she was often staring at me, but I just found it rather unsettling. And then the filming of the owl service was wonderful, absolute bliss, because everybody was totally invested. Peter Plummer, who was the director and producer, he was kindness himself. And um, during the breaks, I spent a lot of time with Michael Hold, and that was quite naughty, because the first time in my life I was laughing uncontrollably when we went filming. <laughs> you would find us in the bus, totally tearing ourselves apart with balloons of laughter. I don't know about what. But we were just, I think we needed laughter, both of us. Mm -hmm. And then one day the makeup person appeared and she tapped on the window. And she raised her voice and she said, what's she doing here? You should be concentrating on your work. And soon she'd come back again. And she said, you should be concentrating on your voice. And we know when she said on your work and on your voice, we both collapsed again. We were actually under the seats. We had, I think, the best time together. The author of The Owl Service was an extraordinary, he was a quiet person. His name was Alan Garner. And he came to see us at the beginning of the shoot to explain the house. He was putting us under its spell. That's what he was doing. Uh, I realized that. He took the two boys and myself to a bedroom and it had a oddly sloping, very low ceiling. And he said to me, lie on the bed and look at the ceiling. And he proceeded to describe the atmosphere in this room that contained what he called something. And I could feel this something because of the way Alan spoke. He was very intense and earnest, mm -hmm. invested. He gave us perfect information for the setting of the story, which was shrouded with the unknown, something like my very young childhood in difficult days when I never knew what country I was going to. And for me, this series was like walking in a dark hall and I was protected by Peter Plummer and David Wood. Oh, he was a a wonderful, invisible cameraman. That's what you should be, you know. Mm -hmm. And emerging in the light at last was, it was miraculous. And in a strange way, it was a claustrophobic environment. And it reminded me of a book I illustrated when I was uh, doing covers. That was much later, and it was called Flowers in the Attic by V.C. Andrews. It had a, a slightly different setting because they were locked up in the attic. Um, but it had that same claustrophobic feeling. And um, later, the interesting thing was my father, Dennis Hills, came back to the UK after being sentenced to death by Diamin. Gosh. Well, he was released thanks to the invention. Well, I, I never know how to use that word. I always say invention, but the intervention yeah. of the yeah of the Queen, which embarrassed my father very much. She was very straight, you know, and he respected Royal genius, respect to the army. He was... Um, and he was embarrassed. Yeah, I mean, I he was embarrassed. I would be grateful. Grateful, but yeah. embarrassed. Gosh. And yeah. he was brought yeah. back from Uganda wow. by Jim Callahan, who was then the, the foreign secretary. And he went to stay with his brother and sister-in-law. And there, my father was able to see me 
on the owl service. They oh. thought they would look at one, but they got hooked on it. Instead of watching <laughs> one episode, they watched the whole series. And oh. many years later, many, 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 he said to me, he was proud of me. Oh. He said, Take your time. <laughs> Sorry, That's I'm so such lovely, a putz. isn't it? Not at all. I mean, gosh, it's it's a huge thing, and that must have meant so much to you. Well, I was I was astounded. You know, I was so surprised mm. because um, I was a bit scared to meet him because my parents didn't get on, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I think I loved him a lot more than I did my mother. Yeah. And so it was a beautiful thing to say to me. But he said it to me um, very close to the end of his life. Mm-hmm. I think he kept a lot in. Mm-hmm. He was very English, you know, very proper. You know, he was a rugby star at Lincoln College. He was a sports person. Mm-hmm. He was always on his bike, visiting countries. He was an adventurer. Yeah, he sounds like an incredible man, and but as you say, it, he was that generation kept it all in, didn't they? Yeah, 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 they did. It did. It did. Let's go back to your music, Gillian. Um, you stopped recording music in '65, but you started up again in 1998. What yes. did you come back with? It began with Gary Moore's technician Graham Lilly, and um, my husband was managing Gary. And I decided to figure out how to use a particular recording machine. Now, I'm not very intelligent in that area. So at lunchtime, I was with Graham. and It was his free time. But before leaving the house to go to the recording studio, I grabbed the closest CD with its wrapping, just in case. Um, Gary's studio was empty. Everybody was up for lunch. I was seeing an empty studio there, and I said, why not record now? I recognised the familiar smell. I sat on the stool, and frankly, I was in heaven. The mic was there. It was paradise. But I know I had to go fast. I didn't want to embarrass Graham, because, of course, he was working for someone else, not for me. I had my poem on a sheet of paper in my hand. I put it on the music stand, and then this unknown music began, and it was the CD. The dreamy sound, it sort of sank into me, and I started. My poem turned into a sing-song, spoken song. It's like a river, you let go, all comes naturally, the phrasing, the music, You follow something that's inventing yourself. And when the end is there, you know. It's all about instinct. One can never repeat it again, never. The song just slipped out. And strangely, the CD I chose belonged with the atmosphere of the poem. The feeling I felt was elation, you know, sweet home. It was, and then um, Stuart was away when this happened because I wouldn't have done it otherwise, Uh, I told him what I had done when he got back, and I felt terribly guilty. He listened to the recording, and then he said, Oh, this is a CD. I left you. And without my knowing it, he sent it to Angelo Badalamenti, 
So of course I screeched and I said, how could you? What will happen? You know, how could you? And Stuart said, well, I know Angelo. And Angelo sent back a letter with comments that amazed me. I felt giddy. And then I jumped up and down. I was so stupid, but... Yeah. Yeah, well... It's lovely, isn't it? It's my most precious letter. I must read it to you because it says, Dear Stuart, just received these Red Hot and Rhapsody CDs from the record company. They include the track that you were interested in hearing that I did with Bowie. I also just finished listening to Gillian's track using the Twin Peaks firewalk with my theme as a backdrop. What a surprise. I was mesmerised. She's got a unique sound and warm feel with pop jazz overtones. That's beautiful. Maybe there's a concept for a special kind of album. Please thank Gillian for getting that to me. I'm off to the coast next week for a couple of weeks. Happy holidays, Angelo. Mm -hmm. And that's... um, no, it's this encouragement has that's such wonderful. a humongous he, effect on me. He describes your sounds so beautifully. That's just spot on. That's so lovely. It put me on the road and I began all over again. And that was because of that letter. I owe Angelo a lot. And I owe, I owe Stuart a lot. I would never do such a thing. I'm like a mouse, you know. I'm very, very um, hidden. A very talented mouse, but you clearly, you need support and encouragement around you. And I'm so happy that you've got that. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes, it's it's a miracle. I have, Stuart. Total miracle. Well, you truly are a versatile artist. And I want to talk about your first live performance in 2007 now. I hear you wrote a special song for that. Well, actually, first of all, what happened was I was invited to be a part of a live show at St. Charles Church near the Denmark Street which is, you know, famous for its music instruments. And this was to help fund a French radio station in the UK that's having financial problems. And um, there was a guitarist, and he was called Olivier Melano, and he was recommended to me, and he lived in France. And um, the day before we rehearsed, I wrote a song, and it was called Mary's Soldiers. Well, I go to a flashback, really, because... Stuart wasn't there, but I was there on September the 11th. And I was in New York in my bathroom. And something that sounded like a rejuvenated copy of Orson Welles, The War of the Worlds, came on the radio. And I thought, well, that's a bit odd. But I listened a bit. And then some minutes later, wild shrieks and screams filled the bathroom. And a reporter was on the scene telling us what was happening. The second tower had fallen. I knew then that this was no radio show I just stood still then went and made a phone call to the UK and I looked at the sky from the window I was facing east which was not downtown and it was a perfect blue sky not one bird it was as if they all flew away and not one sound that was the eerie thing I had a perfect view of downtown from my balcony but I didn't dare to go I was just scared. And then I thought, well, Dennis wouldn't do that. So I took a Polaroid of the sky with smoke moving sideways uh, because that's probably where the wind was blowing. And then I decided to go out. I crossed the street. It was on the road where St. Mark's Bookstore was opposite. 
now is St. Mark's Bookstore, has, has disappeared, but it was the bookstore for artists and things like that. And I decided to look behind at the pavement I'd left, and there were three very young men walking in a file, no jackets, holding satchels, and the first one sank to his knees in slow motion, straight as a rod, looking ahead as before. The others walked by. I averted my eyes and I, I crossed the street to go back home. The newspaper stand was open on the corner. It was still open. I can't believe that. I thought, am I dreaming? <laughs> it was so weird. It had one. And um, it was one that was still brown from the morning, from the smoke in that morning. And I bought that one and I still have it. It's very precious to me. And this was the seed of a song I would write, and it was called Mary's Soldiers. Mm. Um, it's sort of like in the form of a fairy tale with a message, as all fairy tales have, and it begins with a tinge of uh, something like, well, Mary, Mary, quite contrary. Instead, I sing, Mary, Mary, how does your garden grow? On daffodil nails and cat's tails and moons of spilt milk. You see... I use my own words, and it was filmed, and I have it on video. Nobody's seen it yet. I'm singing in this beautiful, beautiful church. It's sort of very close to Denmark Street, and that's what I did. You know how it is when you're an artist and you, you have to overcome, and the only way to overcome is to get out of yourself and you do something else that belongs to it, but is something else, and you create art. That's what you do. Mary, 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 how does your garden grow? On daffodil nails and cat's tails and wounds of spilt milk, which I lap with my tongue and slink on my fur for extra glitter. Over better to take the boys on sailing from the Jenny Janes, who's Bodies and gifted tongue are never enough to hold a man strong. When they recognize my scent, the scent, they come to me with their crooning balls, wishing to be too. That was Mary's Soldiers. I'm going to go back to films now. And your last French film was L'Abbé Moret in 1970, so based on an Emile Zola book. What an interesting piece of work. What were the challenges of that one for you? Something bizarre happened. I was in Copenhagen. I was making a film, and I noticed a script lying by a window. It belonged to a friend of mine. On his return to Paris, he was going to do an issue for a part. And here I felt something, not curiosity, but something else. Like, and I, I can't describe it. I'd never done this before, but I opened the script at random with my eyes closed and I put my finger on one page. I knew it would tell me something. And I, it said in French, uh, 
tu verras, je me ferai toute petite, tu ne sauras même pas que je suis là, which means, you'll see, I will make myself so tiny, you won't even know I'm there. And I recognized this was me. So, anyway, I thought to myself, I'll do something silly and naughty, but I'll contact my agent. And he set up a screen test in Paris. When I arrived at the test, it was a tiny room, you know. Georges Franju, the film director, was there. The other actor who was doing the film test with me was my friend from Copenhagen. And we were both amazed because this made everything so much easier. After the test, my friend left. And Georges Franju said, you've got the part. And he said to me, I want you to stay and watch the test. The film is based on Emisola's La Faute de l'Abbé Mouret. And the English title is The Demise of Father Mouret. And I played the part of Albine and Francis, the Father Mouret, the new priest, the very young new priest who's, who's not eating, who looks really, really white and washed out. And when the filming was finished, Franju invited Francis and myself to visit him and his wife in their apartment, which was in Saint-Germain-des-Prés. He had a, a chair by him, a tall chair, and he was standing in front of a bookcase, which was behind him. He took out a book and he said, this is Sigmund Freud's La Gradiva. And La Gradiva is Sigmund's Freud take on La Gradiva as this young girl and this boy who appears is seduced by the, by the young girl they have a beautiful relationship. And then um, he he's walking and it's raining and behind the wall he sees the priest and he gets back to himself and he walks away from her. And she it just kills her because she feels that she is his wife. And it ends badly but it ends the way it used to end then, you know. Religion then was everything. And nowadays, it still is for various countries. I think religion is the source of many ills, of things that happen that should never happen. It's the source of wars that should never happen. Um, we still live in an ancient time, and I don't know how long it will take us to understand and love each other. I've, I've got a couple more questions for you. Um, the next one is related to film again. I mean, let's face it, you've worked with some of the best film directors in the world. Is there one director you wished you had worked with? Ah, uh, I think when Jean Cocteau was alive, it would have been Jean Cocteau because he was a poet. I loved mm -hmm. Robert Altman because he was, it was, it was like a family altogether in a way. And he was an artist too, in in how he did things. And I loved Ilya Kazan. Uh, he was gritty, uh, mm. very real. And in the now, I love Woody Allen. Um, I love Roman Polanski. He's gifted, very intelligent, and what a life. Uh, again, my father asked one day if I had read Polanski's book, and I said yes. This little boy survived hell 
and then lived a nightmare. He lost his wife with their baby about to be born. It doesn't bear thinking. And he survived the worst. So I think though, if I had to choose just one, it would be David Lynch because he's oh, surreal. Sometimes yeah. he makes one feel uncomfortable. He's very good with sound, with music. He's an artist. His images can be art. His style is inimitable, absolutely inimitable. And nobody but Lynch can do Lynch. He's unique. He's not explainable. He's rather like Antonioni because, you know, Antonioni began as a painter. But Antonioni yeah. was a different, completely different artist. And Kubrick began as a photographer, observing people. But Lynch is a super real, unreal writer. It's, it's, he's sort of like humanity mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. in all its mad bits, fear, power. And there's a type of beauty in his work that is only his. And, well, I think when I watch a David Lynch film, I, I, I think we are a large ball made of rock that will surely crash one day. I would love to see a new Lynch movie, fingers crossed. But apart from that, what does the future hold for you? What can we look forward to? What's the plan? I know you don't like to plan, but can you give any hints as to what the future might be? Um, well, before singing, I was writing poetry. It happened suddenly. It happened, I think, around about 1996 when I was in New York. I'd met somebody from the past and he was very much interested in, in art. He's an art collector, but, you know, surreal art. Uh, and something happened to me. I met Rochelle Stone, who wrote a very important book on my grandfather, on Borislaw Weshnyan. And I was staying in Los Angeles. And I remember saying to myself, the same as... Uh, with Franju, I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to open the pages and I'm going to close my eyes and put my finger on a line. And it talked to me. And I suddenly thought, quickly, 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 I'll go by the window. The sea was there. We had a, a hotel right on the seaside, on, on the shore. And I wrote my first poem. And after that, I couldn't stop. I had a small uh, book with me, very small, the smallest one. And I used to write poems and poems and poems. And I think what I would do is probably put some, my drawings, which are very fine, small drawings. And I would put my poems and I would try to make a beautiful book, like a goodbye book. That's what I would do. A goodbye book. Well, speaking of goodbyes, sadly, we're going to have to end this fantastic uh, random podcast soon. I mean, it's been such an honour and a pleasure to speak to you, but I I know that you've got a final story of a song um, to to finish off with, Steal a Star. Oh, Steal a Star. The thing about me is... What I love best, I leave that to the last. I don't know why I'm like that, because generally people, when they like something best, they put it first, but I don't. It's just part of my nature, like holding, for example, when I was a kid, my one-eyed teddy bear, I was convinced it was full of candy and I shook it and shook it and shook it. But, 
so yeah and then I hid it under the bed you know under the pillow in the dark because it's yours only yours you don't want anybody else to touch it but steal a star is the one I I really loved the best and I put my earphones on and I blasted (laughs) (laughs) that's what I do well let's play out with that you are your very best in dreams that Gillian, I would like to say thank you so much for the time you spent sharing your amazing stories with us. You've such an incredible life. I hope you're going to come on my podcast, Girls on Film, and talk to me some more because I feel like there are still so many wonderful stories to hear from you. Have you had a good time? Have you enjoyed it? Well, I think you've been exceedingly kind, well, kind, shall I say, and calm to listen to me because I'm a nervous individual and I never think of my past. And... This interview has made me think of my past. I don't know what it is. I thought of my past when I was writing the songs, yes. It it made me think of my past. But thinking it and speaking it is different. So my my voice might sound choking sometimes, but it's because my, I put my heart and soul in things. You really do. And thank you so much for sharing that with us so honestly and so passionately. Gillian Hills, thank you so much. Thank you. Gillian Hills, A Life in Art, Film and Music was presented by me, Anna Smith from the Girls on Film podcast. The programme was produced by Russ Williams and executive producers are Tony Byrne and Stuart Young. Copyright Gillian Hills, 2021.